My name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about two comedian heavyweights. And you know, it's interesting, Justin. Uh, nowadays, comedians have very peculiar names. Uh, you say you got who's on first, you got what's on second, you got I don't know's on third. Yep, classic bit that was created and written and performed by the comedian we're talking about today, right, Abbott and Costello. Why are you making faces at me? I'm all created. <laughs> I don't know if Abbott and Costello created anything. No, I don't uh, think they did. And and when you think of Abbott and Costello, it's not like you look at the Marx Brothers, you look at your Charlie Chaplins, your Buster Keatons, and you associate them with innovations, or you think comedy changed after them. I don't know if comedy changed after Abbott and Costello. If anything, they were like an aggregation. They were like the definitive example of something. When people talk about them, they like to say, oh, they continued this vaudevillian tradition, putting these jokes that otherwise would have fallen away into history and making them popular again, like the Who's On First routine, which was popularized by them, but it wasn't their creation. That was an old, dusty thing that had existed forever. Sure. Back in the day, turn of the 20th century, in the burlesque halls and the vaudeville houses, you know, in burlesque, between the striptease acts, you would have these baggy pants comedians who would come out. And uh, typically, they would just pull from the same well of I don't know, somewhere between like 20 and 100 uh, comedy sketches that every comedian used, whether it's the Susquehanna Hat Company routine, whether it's the mutter and fodder routine, yep. uh, whether it's the, the loafing routine. You know, I'm working at a bakery. What do you do there? Loafing. Wait, you mean you're you're loafing at a bakery? You know, classic stuff like that. And everybody listening to this has heard all these routines in The Simpsons. Niagara Falls. <laughs> yeah. Slowly I turn, step by step, inch by inch. You probably heard the Three Stooges do that one. Comedy, it can evolve, but the old chestnuts can just be repurposed, just like they were by Abbott and Costello. You know, in vaudeville, there was this guy. His name was Lou Cristillo. He was just a boy with a dream. He wanted to become a famous Hollywood actor. He wanted to become a matinee idol. And he was also heavily influenced by his hero, Charlie Chaplin. Went to Hollywood. Things didn't really work out for him. Became a stuntman. He became an extra. You know, not much to report. But he went into vaudeville and began a career as a dialect comedian. To be more specific, a xenophobic comedian. In this case, he was parodying uh, the Dutch, which in his eyes, they didn't understand English very well. So there's a lot of comedy out of that. I mean, you've got to understand that, I don't know, I'm just going to spitball it here. 80% of <laughs> vaudeville and burlesque comedians were doing some ethnicity 80%. or another. I'm, more like 98%. <laughs> I'm just pulling that number yeah. out of thin air. It's like... Chico Marx, he's an Italian guy, <laughs> yeah, right? that's right. That's the comedy. But yeah, uh, Lou did a Dutch act. And then meanwhile, there was another guy named... Another star. The, another star named Bud Abbott, who was born into a family of vaudevillians. He, in his younger years, worked the uh, box office at a New York theater where he was giving pay to the likes of Fanny Bryce and W.C. Fields. Eventually worked his way up to, I guess, the middle... <laughs> Uh, sooner or later, these two atoms hit each other. Is that the right metaphor? <laughs> I, I don't know science. <laughs> yeah. What happens when an atom hits another atom? A, a nuclear bomb of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> they met at a place, uh, Minsky's Burlesque, which was a famous kind of burlesque review. Yep, the night they raided Minsky's, everybody's favorite motion picture. <laughs> and, you know, they, they hit it off. They started performing. I mean, they didn't they didn't quite become partners immediately, but this is about 1936 or so. And what people that knew them at the time said was that Abbott 
could keep Lou in line <laughs> in that Lou had a tendency of going big and going wild. And what Abbott did was that he was the bully. You know, we're talking about Abbott and Costello as if everybody listening has heard of them. Have Has everybody listening? I, yes, they have. They've everybody of, knows Abbott and Costello meet the monsters. Yeah, they know meet Frankenstein, I guess, even if they haven't seen it. And yeah. they know who's on first. Mm-hmm. Everybody's seen who's on first. That's it, I think. Other than that, maybe they caught some of their TV appearances. But those, like, 29-ish other movies that they made. 36. Yeah, nobody watches those. When I was a kid... Blockbuster Video, my local Blockbuster Video, had them all. Mm. And I feel like I was the last, like the very last (laughs) generation. Like in the 90s, I rented a bunch of Abbott and Costello movies. I never, ever went through an Abbott and Costello phase to the point that this week I had to differentiate which one was Abbott and which one was Costello. So I'm actually quite excited to have this discussion (laughs) because... I have Abbott and Costello baked into my jeans. Mm-hmm. Fever, I, if you will. I, when I was watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein this week for maybe the 15th time in my mm-hmm. life, maybe the 20th, who knows? I was just thinking about how, yeah, this is one of the quintessential movies for me. Oh, absolutely. I once played it at a 24-hour movie marathon, and it killed. It was like everybody's favorite. Yeah, I still think it's like a borderline perfect movie. Yes, and, I agree with you. And the only one that comes close to being a perfect movie, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's very good. But... It was only this week, after all these years that I ever that I actually started to think, okay, why are these guys funny? What makes what do them I work? like about them? What do I like about them? Because, well, I, I, okay, I'll, maybe I'll get into those theories later. But what do you think of them? Well, from what I watched, and again, I only know them from Meet Frankenstein and a few skits here and there that mm. I've seen. Is that it's essentially Ted Healy and Curly just. Ted Healy beating up on Curly the entire time. (laughs) Right. When you're a kid, you love Lou Costello. He's funny. He acts like a child. He has a catchphrase. I'm a bad little boy. Hey, Abbott! Nobody likes (laughs) Abbott, who, like, in some of the movies that we watched, scenes he just, like, slaps him around, and there's no joke. And it's not even, like, a funny slap. It's, like, a slap that, like, it looks like it really hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you watch Laurel and Hardy... Like, they belong together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they are otherworldly beings. Y- you imagine that if one of them was separated from the other, they would they would curl up and die. There, there's a gravitational force pulling them together. They love each other. They may not like each other, but they love each other. I don't know about Abbott and Costello, though. No, I don't think so. I think that... Why do they... As their characters, <laughs> Abbott would probably leave Costello to die if the situation arose. I think Abbott could get along just fine without him. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know. I think Costello could maybe get along just fine. With but that. would Abbott, would he have had any kind of career like as uh, a performer? Oh, well, in act, I'm not sure if either of them would have had a career mm-hmm. without each other. But within the diegesis yeah. of the films, they both seem to, to varying degrees capable. Like you said, why are they hanging around with each other? <laughs> yeah, it's like they, they don't seem to have this kind of almost semi-romantic bond that other comedians have. I mean, let's use the example of Three Stooges, which we've talked about a lot, but, like, these three guys, they punch, they poke at each other, but at the end of the day, they're in it together, and they care about each other. You never get that from Abbott and Costello. And with Martin and Lewis, there's something almost, like, weirdly homoerotic between them, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, they're both kind of handsome guys, and there's, I don't know, there's, there's a weird electricity there. Um, and yeah, Abbott Costello. Nah, but, and yet, I never ever questioned it once in my life until this week. I wonder if it's when you're a kid, 
you like to th- see someone act like a child, and by extension, someone who's acting like the controlling adult putting that child in their place. I guess so, yeah. Because that makes sense, because it's not like Three Wacky Guys or The Three Stooges, which I grew up with, and I love to no end. And like early on when I was watching these movies, the bad ones, when um, Costello would like make Curly-style noises, I would just go, oh, I was, wish I was watching The Three Stooges. <laughs> And yet, you know, watching the movies this week, I still, I still kind of accept it. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't, um, and I don't, I don't know what to attribute this to, but it's just like oh, maybe yeah. it's been baked in. Abbott and Costello, there they are. But you know what? I'm saying this now, but Abbott and Costello were massive stars, <laughs> starting with their film Buck Privates. This one came out in 1941. It was their second screen appearance and their first starring vehicle. They had already worked their way up in about four or five years from burlesque to vaudeville to Broadway to radio and then finally to film. And Buck Privates is a service comedy. They uh, go off to the army and it's just uh, I a get, bunch of skits. I mean, there's a story, sure, but they there are a half dozen maybe routines that they do. Now, we've talked about the fact that they would insert musical numbers and romance plots and like later Marx Brothers films and how those were death. And through all of these Abbott and Costello films, they all have this terrible stuff that interrupts the comedy. I watched Buck Privates less than a week ago. I cannot <laughs> remember what the romantic plot... There, there's a love triangle. But you remember that bit that they always do with the money, where it's like, can I borrow 50 cents? No, I only got 40. Okay, give me that. You owe me 10. Wait, what? Okay, I love that bit. Great bit. And and I love that because like their patter is like... Monty Python, or to use uh, an absurdly highbrow example, something like Harold Pinter or Samuel Beckett, <laughs> mm-hmm. where it's like there's there's a rhythm and it's and it's like music, and you enjoy more than the comedy, you enjoy that musical rhythm. What's fascinating about Abbott and Costello is that they kind of went backwards than like other comedians, like the Three Stooges, which is they did features and then they moved to television which was essentially the short form of them which i think they work much better in i couldn't agree more the early 50s the abbott and costello show which it's I think just, ran just two like seasons. pure dynamite it's, it's so great it's yeah. incredibly cheap mm-hmm. and all it is is i mean again it also sort of has a story but it's so much it, there's no attempt at being cinematic <laughs> not at and all they're surrounded by other vaudeville guys like joe besser uh, <laughs> yeah, that's and right. others whose names i don't know and yeah they're just just doing bits and costello as a performer not only does he do the childish voice which he supposedly only took to differentiate each other on the radio when they first started doing their radio shows. But he's a real physical comedian. He does, like, pratfalls. He's going all over the place. Yeah. And in the next movie that me and you watched, Hold That Ghost, there's nothing funnier than a comedian acting scared. Hold That Ghost, which came out, I think, also in either 1941 or 1942. This is a fun fact, guys. They were so popular during the Second World War, they made 10 movies between 1941 and 1943. Four in 1941, four in 42, two in 43. So do you think that the massive popularity of Buck Privates also just came at the right time? Like, America's going into World War II. In 1941, you get a service comedy that kind of shines, you know, a comedic light over something that a lot of people are experiencing. Yeah, and it's hard to tell what exactly is in the waters that makes something comic resonate so strongly at one time. I I read an interview with Buster Keaton this week, (laughs) and Buster Keaton actually worked as a gag writer for Abbott and Costello for some of their MGM movies, which is depressing to think. Oh, God. Uh, Yeah, he was at a low ebb when he was doing that. 
that. But he said something along the lines of, if you were to go back and look at that army picture they did, you'd find a very bad picture. But there were no Chaplin pictures. There were no Harold Lloyd pictures. There were no Keaton pictures. There was no competition. I agree with Buster Keaton. He's right. (laughs) And, And I mean, Abbott and Costello, they are not movie comedians in the way that somebody like Buster Keaton was or Jerry Lewis would later be where like they didn't think cinematically. Well, they didn't really think at all about the stuff that they had to do. They had gag writers and stuff like that to do it for them. And they kind of showed up and from stories I've read, they had a lot of money. They didn't know what to do with it. So they gambled a lot. (laughs) They gambled a lot. And then in the fifties, the tax man came calling and said, Hey, you guys didn't pay your taxes for like 10 years. And they were like, Oh, and and an example was made of them. (laughs) And, And Costello went, I'm a bad boy. <laughs> but they kept making movies and they didn't there was no attempt at like oh I feel like an artist I want quality control they just show up in whatever garbage was thrown their way well I read an anecdote which I don't know how true it is but in one of their movies I think it's in society they do the Susquehanna hat company routine and Costello insisted that the whole routine be done in one unbroken take he would only do it once in one take and you can say that's laziness and mm-hmm. maybe it was but but his argument would be listen like this is how we do it and a momentum gets built up we can't do this in installments and it was apparently an incredible like nightmare for the production you know they had to have cameras everywhere getting them at different angles i'm gonna say that's laziness that he's like i'm just doing it once <laughs> i yeah it, it probably is laziness but i mean it also shows that he was somebody who thought in terms of mm. the stage and and thought in terms of you know audience audience laughter so could you replace abbott with any other straight guy comedian i actually want to hear what you think about this yes i, I do uh, you just get some angry guy that's yelling at Luke Costello throughout the movie. And I'm sure like super fans would be like, no, you don't understand. You haven't seen enough of these movies. And you know what? I'll agree with you. I have not seen enough of these movies. <laughs> will I watch that many more? No, I will not. I feel like I've seen other. Now, no, Cos- Costello, that's enough of this nonsense. Yeah, there you go. Whoa, it's like Abbott's in front of me right now. What, how about you as a longtime kid fan of Abbott and Costello. I do like Abbott. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard uh, Jerry Seinfeld this week say that he thinks Abbott is the greatest straight man in show business history. Mm -hmm. But the Uh, difference between (laughs) someone like Abbott and Dean Martin is that they have two very different personalities, but they're both straight man. But I don't think that Jerry Lewis could work with somebody else. I don't think Jerry Lewis could work with Abbott. Mm -hmm. No, definitely not. Because Abbott has no sex appeal. (laughs) That's right. There's something else going on with Dean Martin. Yeah. Like, he's still cool. People still like him. Yeah. Like, no one's like, ooh, I want to see that Abbott by himself movie. Yeah, No. nobody. (laughs) Okay, there's an amazing Abbott and Costello cartoon show from the 60s or 70s where Bud Abbott did the voice. Uh, it was after Lou died, and Abbott sounds old as fuck. He's just, like, on the point of death. He sounds like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> he does sound like Bernie. <laughs> and the cartoon is great because they're, like, fighting giant monsters, all the fun stuff they used to do in their movies. Yeah. But to answer your question, I do like Abbott. I feel very fondly towards yeah, Abbott. Yeah, but that's like you Can grow I, up. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But there's something about him. It's like, he's like the ultimate vaudeville straight man. Yeah. I mean, he's not charismatic. He, he's anti-charismatic, which yeah. is, to me, a weird sort of charisma. It's just, you know, watching these movies... And that voice of his and his delivery. It was never fun to see him, like, torture yeah. Luke Costello, especially in Hold That Ghost. Okay, but here's my final case for Abbott. Mm-hmm. It's like, you listen to them do Who's On First when they were at their peak, mm. and the timing is impeccable. Yeah. And... 
uh, Abbott is like a brick wall with with Costello as Costello gets incredible increasingly frustrated. Like, how can you argue with that? It's like, yeah, I guess the argument is that they became stars. If somebody else could do it, somebody else would have done it. Yeah. But it's these two specific yeah. combinations of things. And like the verbal dexterity of their routines mm-hmm. cannot cannot be understated. Yeah. People need to understand that, like, to be a straight man is difficult when the other person is getting all the laughs because yeah. <laughs> it would be easy to be like oh well i want some laughs too so i'm gonna like break a little or do this mm-hmm. and abbott never broke yeah. he was stoned the entire time and also he torments costello but at least in my eyes uh he gets away with it because he's he's not too attractive or he's not too cool <laughs> yeah. he's not too charismatic it's oh like, so you saw it if he was more of like a ladies man kind of thing and then he was slapping around costello yeah it's like if he was dean martin slapping around costello yeah. he would look too mean but because he looks kind of you know yeah it looks like a bit of a you know, yeah just you know a regular just slump. totally average exactly yeah. but yeah let's talk about hold that ghost i keep trying to talk about it because <laughs> it's so much fun i like, loved it yeah. if you showed somebody hold that ghost they'd be like well i want to see more abbott and costello movies unless they don't like a uh adult man going (laughs) over and over again because that's the whole movie yeah abbott costello through circumstances too complicated to get into here inherit a spooky mansion (laughs) yes with a bunch of random people just people they pick up along the way at at a uh, soda fountain Mm -hmm. where the bartender is shemp yes love it Anytime he shows up in a service industry position. <laughs> and they go to the spooky, spooky house. And of course, there are gangsters. But uh, there, there seem to be spooky goings on, including the classic moving candle routine. <laughs> yeah, where Costello sees a moving candle, is so scared and tries to get the person's attention. And he goes, <laughs> but by the time the person looks at, at him, the candle has stopped moving. Yeah. It would be recreated again and having Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> and also in this movie where there's a whole bit where the room keeps changing yeah. and then Costello's like oh wait come see come see by the time he gets back it's all Costello what are you talking about now end this nonsense the room didn't change and then he slaps him in the face yeah. that's the scene where I was like oh okay yeah. <laughs> and this is a good example of sometimes the movies just slip by and somehow they look great oh my god this movie looks as good as like any of the universal horror movies mm-hmm. from the time just beautiful noir lighting and this one has a very minimal romance storyline no musical numbers until the end where it's like I guess people leave yeah, the, around this yeah the Andrews sisters are in a lot of the early Abbott and Costello <laughs> movies which you know many modern listeners will not know who the Andrews sisters are. <laughs> well, I may not be a fan of Abbott and Costello, but I am a fan of the Andrews sisters. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't be? <laughs> Look at my tattoo! <laughs> but, so this is, I think, a great starter movie. And I wonder if it's because there's kind of like a plot line that's recognizable, while Buck Privates is like a bunch of episodic sketches with no weight, while this has, oh, it's a ghost, and there's, you know, an actual kind of threat to these characters, which is the same reason that people like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Right. The best Abbott yeah. and Costello film. In this one, I'm not going to explain, explain Abbott plot. and Costello. Well, I mean, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein also has the amazing thing that all the universal actors are also playing their roles. That's right. You got Bella Lugosi as Dracula. You got Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. Oh, man. A very uh, soused Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> uh, Glenn Strange as uh, the Frankenstein monster. Boris Karloff did not accept the role. And this was the last appearance by all these monsters. And Vincent Price as the Invisible Man. <laughs> very briefly at the end. <laughs> yes. Uh, and 
as everyone always says, this is hardly a fresh insight. The key reason the movie works is because the monsters play it absolutely dead straight. Mm-hmm. It's a great showcase for the monsters. And Abbott and Costello get to be funny. The monsters get to be scary. I mean, the climax of the movie where it's the monsters chasing them around the castle is so, <laughs> so good. So fun. Yep. <laughs> and the movie is, I mean, it's like just a very well-integrated movie where it looks it looks great. The plot works. Mm-hmm. and It uh, moves. Yeah, it moves. Uh, you know, you're going back and forth between the monsters and Abbott and Costello. The monster who they interact with the most is Lon Chaney Jr. And like Lon Chaney Jr. is allowed to have weight and dignity. In yeah, that scenes. scene where he's transforming and he's like on the phone and he's like, I don't want it to happen. Or there's that part where he goes, uh, you don't understand. Every every night when there's the full moon, I turn into a wolf. Yeah, you and 20 million other guys. <laughs> classic bit i mean we don't need to talk this one up everybody like this is the one that comes up anytime horror comedy is mentioned like i mean i just realized that it's a movie that's so deep in my bones because it's got you know universal horror stuff and baggy pants vaudeville comedians would abbott and costello still be remembered if they had not made that movie no at least not to the degree that like we would not know them Right. Like, I was thinking of, like, what other comedians have we watched for this podcast? Like, Wheeler and Woosley. Like, they made mm, a couple dozen movies. Yeah. They were never as popular as Abbott and Costello. Yeah. But they continued to work. Abbott and Costello were, in 1942, the number one box office Yeah, attraction. they were huge. Uh, they were bigger than Laurel and Hardy. You know, bigger <laughs> yeah. than the Marx Brothers. And they never cheapened themselves early on with, like, uh, short subjects. Mm-hmm. They were always in motion pictures and, before that, the radio. Yeah. So... The Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein actually came at a crucial moment in their career because they were wildly popular through the war. Their popularity started to ebb after the war. And then this movie revitalized them and led to a whole series of Abbott and Costello meet monster movies. They're not good. That's why you've never heard about and them. They're all just the same thing yeah. where it's like Costello gets spooked and Abbott goes, <laughs> what are you talking about, Costello? There's no monster here. Smack. As the real monster is aging. Yes. <laughs> because it's happening as you watch these movies. Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy. Wait, there's another monster one I'm missing, right? Uh, meet the Killer Boris Karloff. <laughs> wow. That's the that, full title. That was a real, like... I don't know. I guess they meet Boris Karloff. Basically, any of the movies they made after 1950, mm-hmm. don't, don't bother with. Um, because we did it for you. We watched <laughs> the last Abbott and Costello movie. That's Dance With Me, Henry from 1956. Uh, the, it was an independent production. It was after the end of their Universal contract. Uh, they Their Universal contract ended in 1955. Uh, Dance With Me, Henry, I had never seen it until this week. It's, uh... They're Max Rose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they really are old as fuck in this one. They're two guys. What's their relationship in this one? I don't know, but I know that, like... Normally they have some reason to be together. Yeah, Abbott, it, at one point, like, frames Costello for a bank robbery okay. that goes too far. Okay, so Costello, he's got uh, an adopted... Uh, son, Henry. Yeah, who's... Or, or, yeah, adopted son, brother, figure, and he's like... He's kind of a chaplain-esque figure in this, you know? He's very sentimental. And he really wants to be able to adopt this kid, which, personally, I don't think he should. I don't know if he's responsible enough. <laughs> and he and Costello, uh, he and Abbott also are put in charge of this, like, amusement park, or they inherit this amusement <laughs> yeah. park. Um, and they're gangsters. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you can tell by me describing it, my attention was drifting a, a, <laughs> at a few parts. Because I'm sorry, there are actually no jokes in the movie, so there was nothing to hold my There's attention. There's a few 
bits. Okay, there's the bit where they're interrogating him and they leave the interrogation room. And then he makes himself coffee, I think. Or... It's, it's like that. You remember that Mr. Bean skit where Mr. Bean <laughs> makes makes a whole lunch? Uh, Mr. Bean, the Abbott and Costello of our generation. <laughs> it's like that. Like, there's a lot of very tepid gags. I, I would have enjoyed seeing them do, you know... Who's on first? Who's on first, yeah. Uh, there's a clip of them online, like, getting on stage, and they're like, what bits do you want? And someone goes, who's on first? And they're like, ah, is that really the one that you want to hear? And they're like, yay! He's like, okay. Well, you know, baseball players, they have very peculiar names nowadays. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it ends with uh, a bunch of gangsters chasing Abbott and Costello, and a bunch of kids beating them with pots and pans and they got squirt guns. You know, it's like it's a mad, 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 mad world where it's the uh, old comedians handing it off to the kid generation. <laughs> yeah, I was watching this scene with the kids and thinking, I feel... I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to watch a, a children's film. That, no. that's what this, this is a movie for children. This, <laughs> yeah. is, this is beneath yeah. I don't want to watch a children's film. Give me Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, please. Yeah. An adult comedy. Yeah, I want to, you know, I want to see Abbott and Costello in vaudeville with strippers in between their routines. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I mean, if they had lived just a little bit longer, there would have been like a keyholes are for peeping that Abbott stars in. Abbott and Costello were together for 19, 20 years. I think I think 20 years. They had ups and downs in their relationship. There was a period in the mid-40s when they went a whole year without speaking. But they still acted in movies together. They would only uh, speak to each other mm. in the film. There are two movies where they spend most of the movies apart. Mm. And, and they interact in like one or two scenes. <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, t- total shit. A little giant in time of their lives. That's what mm. they are. Can you believe I know that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do believe that you could, you know that. Something else that I, I feel like bringing up, even though I'm not quite sure how it integrates into the discussion, is uh, one of the key facts about Abbott and Costello is that Costello endured a horrible personal tragedy in his life. In 1943, he was uh, struck with rheumatic fever at the very height of his fame. He was bedridden for nine months. So all the movies stopped, all the radio shows stopped. But during that time, he had an infant son. And then on his son's first birthday, which was also the first day Costello was returning to his radio show, uh, his infant son came out, fell out of his crib, fell into the pool and drowned. You know, it's a very famous story that Costello went on with the radio show that night. And he said, because little Butch is going to hear me, you know, wherever he is. But he was never the same after that. Most people said that, like, his heart was just not in it anymore because it, it hurt that much and continued to hurt throughout his career and his life. And in fact, this week I actually listened to the radio broadcast that mm-hmm. they did that night where where Abbott comes out at the end of the show and explains what had happened. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but I mean, may, I'm not sure how the difference manifested itself. So in one sense, you can look at that and go, well, they were the ultimate professional yeah, comedians. The show must go on. That like they didn't really do their own material, but they took material that was well known and did it as well as it could be done. Mm-hmm. And that's why they were stars. Yeah. And like all fading comedians in the time of television who need money, after Lou Costello passed away, Abbott found a lookalike that he tried to tour oh, with. Oh, well, yeah, that is, it. That is interesting, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, we've seen... Interesting or very sad. Well, we saw some pictures of the two of them together. And okay, earlier on the episode, I was saying how you can't imagine Laurel and Hardy apart, <laughs> like, or you can't imagine the Three Stooges apart. It's like there's a, a force that binds mm-hmm. them together. It seems somehow wrong to see Abbott standing next to another guy. Well, like a lookalike yeah. who like did the voice and everything. Like it seems, it seems like like oh god, I don't want to like that's that's a betrayal. That's like 
That's like seeing your parents divorce or something. Well, what about the Three Stooges? And there's Curly Joe Dorita. Oh, well, that's different. <laughs> yeah, that's different. Because I grew up with Curly Joe. <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe there was maybe there was something between Abbott mm-hmm. and Costello. Maybe there was a force that brought them yeah. together and made them a great comedy team. I mean, you know, they were so successful. How could there not be? Yeah, how can you, how can you Justin, argue? I'm not arguing. I agree with success. you. <laughs> All right. Well, glad glad we brought you around. You're on team. You're on team. Team Abbott Abbott, now. Yeah. Throw out all my Three Stooges merchandise and DVDs. I'm a bad boy. If I gave you a choice of watching a Three Stooges short or an Abbott and Costello one, which one would you go for? I would go with the Three Stooges. Okay. (laughs) We interrupt this regular scheduled programming to thank some of our Patreon subscribers, who include Kyle Bycroft, Cody Vandenberg, Joel. Jay Loman, William Love, Ryan LaDuke, and Jesse Edwards. We really appreciate you becoming Patreon subscribers. We hope you enjoy all of the back catalog that we have of the Director's Cut series, which has now hit 150 episodes with this week's posting. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber, we'd really appreciate it, and you can do it at patreon.com slash Club. You can also write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate when you do that. Um, leave some words hit that star rating. It just helps spread the show and gives us the energy to keep going. Just want to remind everybody that the new release of Gold Ninja Video, Death Warrior, is now available for pre-order at goldninjavideo.com. Me and Will will talk about it more next week, but we also talked about this movie and its star, Janate Arkin, in The Man Who Stole Star Wars, which came out a few weeks ago. So check that out. You'll definitely want to see the movie Death Warrior after that, and go pick up the Gold Ninja Video release. It's $10.00. It's limited edition, and I did a whole ton of new special features for it. Now, back to the show. Uh, do we have any letters this week? We do. As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Noah Taylor, and it goes, Dear Important Cinema Club, a little while back, I listened to your Best of 2019 episode and was surprised that Will included S. Craig Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete. I wasn't a big fan of his first two films, but I decided to give it a shot. Unfortunately, I found it aggressively flat in every way. However, in the same conversation, you talked about Zoller's career as a novelist, which I was unaware of. I took out Congregation of Jackals from the library and loved it. And since that, I've been reading every book of his that I can get my hands on. Are there any other writer-directors that have gone back and forth between fiction and film like he has? I know Cronenberg put out a novel, but can't think of any other examples. And since I'm guilty of being a film bro, I will of course be reading any novels that QT claims he'll be putting out. Cheers, Noah. Quentin Tarantino's never going to write a novel. <laughs> yeah, geez, uh, Noah, you just named the two directors that would have been my instant <laughs> yeah. one and two. I'm having trouble thinking of like another film director who also did notable novels. Yeah, notable novels. Like I was thinking, oh, you know, John Sayles wrote a bunch of novels that I see in used bookstores sometimes. Yeah, um, Gus Van Sant kind of like played with that a little bit. But it's like you know Noah I, Ephron, but she kind of came out of writing, and she didn't write oh, novels, yeah, did she? Yeah. What was the movie called? Heartburn. That oh, was yeah, Noah yeah. Ephron, right? Yeah, that was Noah Ephron, and then yeah, the novel that was based on her own life, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But but she was a writer first, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, as a, as opposed to people who like are filmmakers and then become novelists. Did, was Chantal Ackerman a novelist? I know she wrote books. Mm, yeah, um, nothing springs to mind. Oh yeah, you know who springs to mind? Uh, Ed Wood. <laughs> That's right. He but wrote think, over a hundred novels. Yeah, but those novels kind of came out of desperation as a way to pay the bills. Yeah, those are pretty sexy books. <laughs> yeah, that that is strange though. I mean, you think of the great writer directors. 
And I, I just haven't, I'm having trouble. I yeah. think that when like film becomes the medium that you can express yourself in and you're big enough to do that, you just do it through film yeah. and novels are sometimes more difficult because you're working alone. You can't boss people around. And a script is a very different thing from a novel. Mm-hmm. Believe uh, it or not. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Our next letter is from Brendan White and it goes, hello, fellow dudes. I'm a relatively new listener and I've been going through the archives of your show recently. I live in Chicago and this morning while making my breakfast i listened to the episode where will almost uncontrollably denigrates joe swanberg i laughed joe out loud swanberg. almost non-stop throughout i don't even remember that that was, was the mumble core yeah but did we like riff on him that bad or like rip I, him apart i guess we must have i mean that's funny because i hear it now and it's like i don't think of myself as having a lot of particular ill will towards joe swanberg i'm not a, i'm not a fan really yeah but. but now it's frozen in amber forever to be revisited upon whoever stumbles yeah. upon it one thing i really love about the podcast is a pluralistic idea of cinema your overlapping but different tastes allow for. And I was curious, do you guys have an opinion on the films of Samuel Fuller? I started watching his movies only last year after reading a Godard biography, but I've enjoyed almost every one of them and they really seem up your guy's alley. Stylish, pulpy, inventive, short, weird. Manny Farber's essay on him is a long laudatory insult, a backhanded compliment that totally convinced me that I had to see every one of his mentioned movies. My apologies if you covered this in an earlier mailbag. Keep up the good work. Yours, Brendan. P.S. I'm now 180 pages into Jimmy McDonough's The Ghastly One. Holy mm. shit. Oh, enjoy. That's the Andy Milligan biography for yeah. those who don't remember. Or who have not listened to the Andy Milligan episode that we did. Which you should you check should. it out. Some people uh, were writing on the Discord, which you can join if you're a Patreon member, that like, oh, I never heard about Andy Milligan. I'm going to go buy some of his movies now. And I was like, good luck. Wow. But they said they liked it. Oh, that's good. Because yeah. that's a lot of responsibility to put on us. Again, like I said at the end of the episode, we, we hedged our bets. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were not like, this is the true John Cassavetes yeah. of the Gunners. Uh, but Samuel Fuller, yeah. I mean, love Samuel we love Fuller. Him. Yeah, he's great. In I fact, wonder why he's never come up before. I feel like we've talked about doing him before, like, as, as like, a long time ago, mm -hmm. but it was just, I think maybe I wanted to see more movies. Oh, I think him. you actually said that. You said, I want to see more Samuel Fuller film before I get to it. And him. I feel like I probably have. Yeah, you've seen Shark with Burt Reynolds? No, I haven't seen that. <laughs> I haven't seen Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street. Oh, you've had the Blu-ray for so long! I know. <laughs> it's so long, though. It is. The German TV movie that he made. But I, I have definitely, like, accumulated a lot of Samuel Fuller uh, mm -hmm. watching over the years, and, and I love him. He's great. Yeah. White, so, white Dog, Shock Corridor. You know what? Speaking of novelists that are also filmmakers, Samuel Fuller. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, right there. Yes. So, yeah, so we're definitely going to see Samuel Fuller Probably sooner than later, yeah, I would say. Now that it's back on our radar, I, <laughs> yeah. I would love to watch some Samuel Fuller soon. So and I love him in uh, Return to Salem's Lot. Oh, he is so good <laughs> in Return to Salem's Lot, the Larry Cohen sequel to the Stephen King, Toby Hooper film. That's right. So this week on our Patreon episode, we're going to be talking about Lung Kar Yan. Wait, who's that, Will? I've never heard this name before. Well, he's the star of a recent Golden Ninja video release, uh, The Thundering Mantis, but also a journeyman martial arts actor, uh, somebody who Justin's taken a shine to. Yep. And uh, he's great. Yeah, and, he is great. And and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into him and maybe some issues surrounding the Thunder Thundering Mantis, Mantis. Specifically what it's most famous for. <laughs> Which you wanna know, folks. <laughs> yeah. Don't read the back cover of the Blu-ray that I put out where it gives you that the answer to that. <laughs> oh, and uh, by the way, uh, there's also the Discord server on the Patreon. Mm -hmm. If you join the Patreon, you can uh, chit chat with chat me with and Will. Like-minded folks. Yeah, it's uh, fairly active and it's a lot of fun so check it out uh, it's five dollars a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club
so next week, what are we doing, Will? We're doing Jama Fanaka. Sorry if that's the wrong pronunciation. He was a filmmaker, part of the L.A. Rebellion, which was a group of independent black filmmakers in the 70s and 80s. But he's most famous for directing the Penitentiary Trilogy. Yes, def- he's a filmmaker who definitely straddles the line between art and exploitation. Uh, he made a film called Welcome Home, Brother Charles, which... <laughs> Everybody knows it as the movie where a black man has a gigantic penis that kills people. But that's not really what it's about. In fact, that only happens in the last five minutes. And (laughs) the rest of it is almost like a social realist drama. Which is also like the other film that's included on the Vinegar Syndrome disc, uh, Emma May as well. And he's a man who sued some Hollywood producers for like not giving him opportunities or some other reason related to that that I'm sure we will discover when we talk about him next episode. Yeah, I haven't seen the penitentiary movie, so I'm excited to Oh man, each one it. is crazier than the last. All right. I think it's the second one Mr. T is in it and uh, me and my friends had a joke that it sounds like Mr. T's going to cancer at one point. That's not what he's saying. But that's what it sounds like he's saying. So Can't wait. yeah, tons of fun. I mean, Penitentiary 3 is super famous for how wacky it is that there's like little people wrestling, like people's heads get knocked off and stuff like that yeah so yep where that's what we're going to be doing next week and until then my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening Will you watched one of the first VHS movies ever recently David A. Pryor, Sledgehammer. <laughs> That's right. I have the Intervision DVD, and oh. according to the back cover, it says that this was the first shot-on-video horror movie made exclusively for the video market. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I think Boarding House is technically the first one, but that one was blown up to 35 millimeter and released theatrically. Yeah. Well, this movie was directed by a guy who later went on to make a lot of, like, direct-to-video action movies starring people like Robert Davi. Well, he's most famous also for directing with his brother uh, Deadly Prey. Everybody's seen that like trailer online, that Rambo ripoff where the guy like cuts a guy's arm off and yeah, that was like a bad movie classic that was going around for a while. But this was his first movie. In theory, it's a generic slasher movie. Bunch of teens in a house that's haunted by the uh, I want to say ghost of... I don't know what's going on in this movie. So, ten years ago at this regular (laughs) suburban house i am yeah 10 years ago at this regular suburban house uh there was there was a little boy uh actually i'm sorry i'm already forgetting the the boy (laughs) the boy killed yeah yeah okay the boy killed or was it his parents who killed the boy (laughs) where am i who am i talking to here joe biden yeah (laughs) brain worse well anyway what, what matters is that they're haunted by the ghost of the boy who can also turn into a sledgehammer and a large man in a mask depending on what the movie wants to do and i would say there's you know about 20 minutes of stuff in this movie oh they, yeah they spread it out oh, to man. 85 minutes i hope you like slow motion because oh boy is there a lot of it people walk across screen you're gonna watch it in slow motion we've talked on this podcast about slow cinema where <laughs> where the sh- it's giving you so little and you're sort of forced to like mm. come up to the screen and like put something onto it and uh i would say the same principle applies here and everyone is such a huge jerk in the movie too yeah. and there's like scenes that it looks like they just put the camera down and like improv improv just do what you want there's like a food fight that breaks out oh, yeah and it's a bunch of teens and they're all like 35 <laughs> yeah just huge jerks and, and the house where it's sat in is not particularly photogenic i believe it was one of the guy's apartments that they ended up shooting in yeah. but they make it look like a house yeah there's a hallway that we spend a lot of time in but what's great about it is that it devolves at the end into just crazy nonsense that yeah. has no narrative or kind of uh, 
regard with storytelling or physics. And it's the perfect kind of uh, VHS movie because it's made by people who have no idea how to make a film. It's sort of interesting to me how the, I guess, cult movie landscape has evolved in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. When I was you know, a kid and I had video hounds, cult flicks and trash picks, this sort of movie would never have been in there. Never. The, the sort of stuff that that book was interested in was like Roger Corman, Ed Wood, a bit of trauma, mm-hmm. uh, stuff stuff like that. That was uh, George A. Romero, that sort of cult, like American independent cult cinema from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But now I think that all the detritus that has been kind of just laid out that just was released during the video store era. People are rediscovering it and applying value to it that it never had when it came out. And a lot of that has to do with like cycles of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So when a book like Video Hounds, Cult Flicks, and Trash Picks came out, there was still like nostalgia for the 50s. Yeah, I think it also has a lot to do with the video era was the first time that people that didn't know what they were doing could mm-hmm. pick up cameras and shoot something mm-hmm. at a price point that they could afford to just create when if you're shooting a 35, 16, super eight, it's very cost like prohibitive and their movie would share the same shelf space with a Hollywood blockbuster. It didn't matter. Right. I also think nostalgia is important though, because the fact that shot on video stuff, early video photography is so outmoded now and like we're nostalgic for it and it looks it looks beautiful because it's not like like in the 80s this would have been looked at as like oh that's cheap. the cheap format whereas yeah. now particularly because people don't use it anymore you're able to see what's beautiful about it's like it. painting with different brushes like something like sledgehammer they're using such ancient video technology it's like tube stuff so like lights blur when you move the camera <laughs> i mean i was thinking about that when we watched bill gunn's personal problems exactly which, yeah. which is also prevalent in um <laughs> sledgehammer yeah <laughs> so it's nice that all of this detritus can finally be kind of rediscovered by people who i guess are hungry for new stuff because we have access to everything so we're just looking for aesthetically something that is different yeah. and has a voice. Yeah, just like new weird textures. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a movie that's often mentioned in the same breath as Things, mm-hmm. the masterpiece, uh, the ridiculous Canadian <laughs> shot on video horror movie, which is probably like the best example of this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it's amazing. You know, stuff like that where it's like the, the the cinematography and the pace gives it a weird hypnotic quality. You know, Things is like an Evil Dead. Uh, Sledgehammer is like Antonioni. Yeah, <laughs> where right. It's like this is for the true connoisseur. That's but right. Intervision put together a beautiful DVD that came out years ago. So go snatch it up before it's too late.